Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 188 today. Uh, we're going to be discussing esoteric and initiatic spirituality with our guest, Angel, uh, Angel Miller. Uh, Angel has written the book, which I have right here, The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality. Uh, and he's well-versed in, obviously, all the mystery traditions. And he's uh, written some books previously. I have links down below, so go check those out. And uh, before we get started here, head on over and go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. We will be doing one with Angel today. And uh, also, shout out to our new uh, escapee, Jackie Ellis. We really appreciate you and enjoy the new content. And... Uh, one more thing before we get started, head on over to indrasweb.org. It is live. Sign up for an account today. This is the platform we created to connect open minds, whether we're talking about esoteric traditions, uh, ancient you know, civilizations, megalithic structures, philosophy, all that kind of amazing stuff. So go check that out. And uh, without further ado, welcome on the show. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Um, so I really enjoyed your book. Um, I thought that, uh, it kind of intertwined stuff that we talk about on the show a lot, which would be the esoteric traditions, spirituality and archetypes. Um, so why don't you give us just a little bit of a background on how you got into this stuff and, um, why you wrote that book? Sure. Sure. Well, it's been a long journey, but, uh, I try not to take up too much time with it, but, uh, um, I started getting interested in the esoteric and the occult, uh, maybe even religion a little bit, when I was around 15 in a very, very um, minor way. I, I picked up a book on uh, astral projection and the classical elements and uh, tried one of the astral projections and frankly didn't really understand a word of it, uh, at least not of the theory behind it and what are these elements and, and uh, that sort of thing. I had real no real clue as a you know young teenager. And then um, then when I then later on I bought a book actually on pagan rituals and I, or neo-pagan rituals which I found really interesting. Again, I didn't understand a word of it really. I didn't know anyone that was into this kind of thing. And um, it just so happened that when I was around uh, 17, some friends of mine uh, said that they had gone to a quote-unquote hippie shop and mm -hmm. um, uh, said I really had to go. It was really cool. And um, I, I went along. It, it actually wasn't really a hippie shop. It, it was kind of a, an occult shop that sold some sort of, um, you would have liked it, lots of sort of uh, accoutrements for mm -hmm. smoking certain substances and right. some tie-dyed clothing and things like that. But really the, the main focus was on um, uh, selling books on the occult and neo-paganism, which I immediately gravitated towards. And... Um, this was this was a bookshop a few miles from where I lived in the southeast of London. It was actually in a little place called uh, Dartford, and um, so it was a you know a bus ride or a train ride away, depending. 
And uh, so I ended up spending a lot of time there and sort of hanging out there, reading books, buying more books and becoming very involved with this scene. And there was this more sort of a neo-pagan circle in the basement. And, um, you know, after maybe a year of that, I got a little bit uh, fed up with it, as I think as most people did. But I was hanging out with friends I had known before then. We were still involved in this sort of neo-pagan world, though I was reading other things, such as Alistair Crowley. I was reading um, more sort of anthropological books as well by uh, Machia Iliade as well. So I was reading things that... Um, at that age that even some scholars would consider to be, you know, pretty serious books. And uh, it really fueled my imagination. I started painting a lot uh, at that point. Um, and uh, after that, um, I, I became involved in the, when, at the age of uh, 19, I became involved in the, the Illuminates of Thanateros for around 18 months, uh, which is an occult order in uh, Great Britain. It was a very in, intense experience, um, uh, very intense. I mean, we can come back to that later. But sure. uh, after, after that, uh, what well, I ended up going to Chelsea College of Art. I started practicing uh, Kung Fu a little bit later on. I actually uh, went and stayed in a, in a Benedictine monastery uh, uh, around that time as well. Benedictines are a type of Christian uh, monasticism, which was actually already an incredible experience staying there for about a week at a time and just, you know, experiencing monastic life in a little short burst was uh, pretty extraordinary. Um, uh, I became interested in Buddhism, Hinduism, and then uh, then later I moved to New York. Um, I was initiated into Freemasonry uh, in two th late 2001, and um, I started researching. Uh, in New York, there's actually a, a Masonic uh, library and museum. I started researching the subject um, uh, substantially, uh, very quickly. And, um, one thing led to another, I was asked to write a book on Freemasonry. I was actually planning to write a book on Freemasonry and German philosophy, but I think luckily, uh, uh, that was put on hold and I wrote a, a history of Freemasonry. And then I wrote another book on Freemasonry and Western esotericism, and then a book on uh, Freemasonry and Islam, mostly from around 1850 to 19, 20, 30. And um, and then uh, my last book, uh, my current book, is the three stages of initiatic spirituality, which looks at a whole range of initiatic traditions. And I've been involved in other little things along the way, um, but that would be a broad overview. Awesome. Were you before you wrote uh, your current book, uh, the three uh, stages of initiatic spirituality? Were you religious at all, or like did you was your background? Did you come from a religious background or is that something that you developed along the way? Yeah. So uh, England, maybe slightly less so now with immigration, but um, uh, certainly at that time and for several decades beforehand, um, England was really a an extraordinarily secular country. I think it would be really difficult for most Americans and certainly most evangelical Christians in America to really wrap their minds around uh, just how secular Great Britain is. And um, I know that a lot of Americans or a lot of, let's say, atheist Americans may feel that that sounds great, but actually it's a, it's a very, very bleak uh, way of looking at the world because uh, you know, what replaces that is not uh, sort of freedom and, and making art and being creative. It's, what, re what replaced that in England, at least, or in Great Britain, 
was really, um, uh, from my perspective, a kind of uh, kind of materialism that was in- incredibly base. So you really you just wanted to fit into society, make sure you weren't saying anything controversial, um, make sure you had a job where you could make enough money to you know get married, have a house, and if you've got a good car as well, then that that should be you uh, satisfied for life. And um, there was still, and maybe there is even now, at that time, there was still a kind of reverence for the institutions, um, at least among sort of more conservative people. Um, And so, for example, you know, someone who was conservative might uh, have a great reverence for the queen and the monarchy, but at the same time would not be religious normally. And so you had this weird thing where the the queen is the, the head of the Church of England, and you know somebody would be revering the queen as this great institution and intelligent individual and we're lucky to have her as our figurehead but at the same time it's sort of uh, regarding what she stood for the church of england as ridiculous and so there's this kind of cultural schizophrenia almost in great britain i have found and and i felt that it was a very almost sort of nihilistic um, environment to grow up in because you, there was no sense of the spirit or of the spiritual and not even a great sense of the creative except among um, sort of rebellious youths who were you know into punk or something like that but uh, yeah so I I think in a way what I don't think it was a, a case of me trying to rebel but it was a case of me feeling that there has to be more to life than this sort of desire just to conform and no one really knows why and to pay lip service to the institutions, but not actually even understand what they, they stand for. Right. Yeah. I think the, you you know, they're from my point of view, growing up of just British people, it did seem like there was this like uh, materialist stoic or stoicism element to it, where it's just like, get on with the day, live your life, but there's nothing more to it than that kind of a thing. I just, I've always yeah. gotten that vibe from, uh, and now it seems to be changing though. There's a lot of psychonauts. There's a lot of people exploring these other things and, you know, exploring lots of different esoteric and metaphysical topics and different things now. But yeah, I, I mean, so if, do you think that um, we look at, you know, all these different traditions and the way that the internet's going and everything that maybe that the more information that's out there is probably, drawing more people into some of these topics that were not into them before? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, uh, it's a positive and a negative. And um, one of the, the, the positives is, of course, that you can stumble across this material much uh, more easily. So maybe you're someone who's inclined to, say, spirituality, and you wouldn't have been exposed to it before, let's say, in Great Britain. But now you can do a, a Google search or someone post something on Facebook and you're intrigued and you end up having a connection that you might not have had. I think the the downside of, well, there are many downsides to the internet, I think. And one of them is that things that are popular tend to be kind of trivial. Mm. And um, it's true, you know, I watch a lot of, um, just uh, not because I, this is my belief or anything, but I watch a lot of, uh, you know, sort of neo-pagan gurus on, um, 
on YouTube, and you know, some of them, very few of them, will focus on, let's say, the uh, the actual history and artifacts, and they're very methodical. And in a way, they're actually quite scholarly sometimes. And then there are others where it's sort of um, things like, well, you know, if that's the way Thor makes you feel, man, you just do it. <laughs> and it's this incredible kind of trivial. And okay, they're into these particular gods, but they could be into anything, because it's the same sort of popular uh, fortune cookie wisdom repackaged within the guise of these ancient gods and spirituality. But the actual spirituality that they're promoting is is the same as everything else. It's, you know, if that's if that's what it makes you feel, man. You just do it. You know, you could hear this anywhere, and say, like, what what is this? Right. And, um, and I think. You know, uh, when I was first involved in this stuff, it was really difficult to find out about. And you just had to come across something by chance. Or, you know, if you went to London and you went to the British Museum, you would probably pass Atlantis Bookstore, which was in a cold shop very close to there. So maybe you could find out things through that. Otherwise, you weren't going to. But the positive of that was the people that got involved in it and stayed involved in it tended to be very serious and quite intelligent if not intellectual often were very dedicated it was really their life so it was really it was really something serious whereas now i look at it and it looks a lot of it looks just incredibly trivial yeah yeah um so let's talk about your book um why don't you describe kind of um, the three archetypes, let's go through each one of them and kind of sure. um, discuss that. Because I think that that's probably yeah. obviously the, the, uh, uh, the, I guess I don't even know how to explain the, the main point of your the book, essence. right? Is, yeah, the essence, exactly. Good one. Yeah. yeah, so the book is divided into three sections with several chapters in each section. And there's one for the craftsman one for the warrior and one for the magician. And um, one of the reasons uh, why I became interested in these three archetypes, you've, you've probably heard of other books such as um, uh, King, Magician, Warrior, Lover, which my book has been compared to because of the title, although the actual contents are totally different. But, um, you know, so why not those archetypes or other another number of archetypes, why these three? And um, uh, it was suggested by a philologist, uh, George de Mazil, in the last century that, um, that ancient Indo-European societies were structured along uh, the lines of those three vocations of the, the craftsman or the herder, the warrior, and the priest uh, class or priest caste, the Brahmin. Uh, and so on. And, um, and then I came across um, uh, a book by a former chancellor of the Robert R. Livingston Library of the Grand Lodge of New York, the Masonic Library in uh, New York, basically. And um, uh, he had written a book on uh, called Masonic Temples, and he mentioned uh, this idea that um, uh, the, the different rites within Freemasonry um, reflected uh, certain archetypes and he mentioned uh, the uh, the craft lodge of freemasonry which is entered apprentice fellow crafted master mason we can go more into that but that's basically sure. what people think of as freemasonry and so he said that that was related to the craft which is certainly true because it's all architectural um 
symbolism and it's often called craft freemasonry so there will be the craftsman and then the york right which has uh the uh the knight quote-unquote knights templar degree or the order of the temple in it um, that he likened to the warrior and then the scottish right um which is often seen to be more esoteric or mystical in uh, in america uh, he likened that to the magician and it should be said that he also um likened the shriners uh to the uh to the jester as well and i don't think he was aware of george dumazel's uh claim of, of the foundation of um indo-european societies uh being the craftsman warrior magician caste but nevertheless uh he's seeming to be saying that a modern institution more or less like freemasonry uh reflected something that was in a sense uh really pre-history and um, that kind of intrigued me and then really the more I looked at these archetypes the more they began to show up in different ways and um, you find in different cultures that these three archetypes kind of go together and uh, in different ways so if you look at Sufism um, Sufi uh, Sufism during the 12th century um, became more formalized uh, before that, it was a wandering Sufi mystics, but then it was formalized into Sufi uh, lodges. And uh, when that occurred, the, the, the Sufis incorporated Islamic mysticism with the, the structure of the trade guild. So you had apprentices, fellows and the, the, the Sufi uh, sheikh or master. And they also incorporated um, the, the uh, Muslim uh, warrior or the ethics of the Muslim warrior. Uh, that being Islamic chivalry or futawa. And so there you have already the you have Islamic mysticism, Islamic chivalry and craft. So craftsman warrior, uh, magician, broadly speaking. And um, but you find it elsewhere as well. So Plato, for, for example, said, um, you know, education should be through learning uh, music, which would be the craftsman, wrestling, which would be the warrior and philosophy, the magician. And, um, you know, even in certain historical figures, um, you find these different coming together in different ways. Samurai um, you know, was influenced by Zen Buddhism significantly. Uh, the, the samurai Miyamoto Masashi was probably the most famous samurai of Japan. Uh, wasn't just a warrior. Uh, he was also renowned in his day for his painting, calligraphy and even landscape gardening. And it's still... Uh, widely recognized for his painting and calligraphy in Japan. Or you have someone in the West, like um, the Viking warrior, uh, Egil Skallagrimson. And, and like Miyamoto Musashi, he made his first kill when he was very uh, young, really just a child by our, our standards today. And uh, was, re was feared as a, as a bloodthirsty um, warrior, maybe even a little bit crazy, but at the same time was uh, renowned as a poet as well. And so you find these different kind of archetypes coming together in different people and in different cultures in, in different ways throughout, throughout time. So I really wanted to explore those three archetypes and from the ancient period uh, right up until today, uh, even into things like chaos magic and Jungian psychology and so on. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, and I think, too, do you I mean, how far back do you like, do you think these ancient people were thinking of 
of it in long in, in like in terms of these different um like these separate archetypes like this person does this i do this like you know yeah um because you know there's stories like of how pythagoras you know the difference in tones and mathematics and music and how he heard the blacksmith hitting the thing and it gave off different um tones yeah. when he was hitting you know so like obviously yeah. there was a cross you know cross referencing then but how far back do you think that goes yeah i mean it's difficult to say how people conceived of it in the ancient period but um it's been suggested and i think this is pretty credible that in uh, ancient indo-european societies uh, the individual would begin as a craftsman and then as they age they would be or mature they would become a warrior and then finally would become a, you know, essentially a priest but that that makes uh, makes a lot of sense to an to an ancient culture it doesn't make a lot of sense to us perhaps because we're used to the idea of um, being educated until you are 18 21 30 35 and then getting a job after that, depending on your profession. But in the pre, pre-modern uh, times, and certainly in the ancient period, uh, no one was going to college like that. And uh, most people um, were really beginning work as a you know, four-year-old, five-year-old, helping the parents in the field or the forge or whatever it was. And so, um, so this, it's been suggested that so as a child, you would be a craftsman, and then, at least especially for men, you know, when the body matured, then you would be a warrior. You've got hunting, defending the village or fighting another village. And then as the body uh, began to decline in strength, uh, then you would become a member of the uh, sort of priest class, as it were. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, um, you know, I'm sure that wasn't universal. But um, you can see that there might be a natural transition, and obviously, in some societies, these rule, these um, these vocations are, are blended or blurred around the edges, and so in you know Norse society, the the male head of the household um, would cast uh, cast the omens, and so it had a priestly function, although he wasn't a priest. Um, women too, of course, could be uh, seeresses as well. So. So I'm sure there was blurring around the edges and some overlap, but it seems that you could at least go from one, let's say, vocation to the to the next as you matured. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, I guess um, it's not that dissimilar to how it is today with like the evolution of consciousness. You know, if you were to right. evolve in that way now, you know, like the economy changes or this changes or that changes, you got to kind of just roll with it. Uh, but at yeah. the same time, it's like people are also, I mean, I don't know how much longer compared to the ancient people. There's obviously it depends, but generally I think people just live longer now. So I think that there's probably more stages to that at this point. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, well, there may be potentially more stages, but I don't know if people are really actualizing that because, you know, even in the few tribes that we know of that still exist today, um, there's a plane going on. <laughs> Sounds like we're taking close. off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're close to the airport, but that's the, uh, that's pretty loud. No, you're um, fine. It's not usually like that. 
But, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, whatever, the few remaining tribes today, there's still this idea that they would sort of revere the elders of the tribe as people of knowledge and people who retain the uh, the stories of the, of the tribe, which give meaning to being in that tribe. Whereas today, I don't think many of us look at elderly people and think, wow, you know, we really would be at a loss without them. We're, we're much more of a youth-focused culture. So our, all of our attention goes on um, uh, mostly young people, you know, uh, teenage pop stars, maybe actors a little bit later, but, but I think uh, we're much more of a youth-focused uh, society. And so whether people really sort of actualize themselves as they go through life, um, personally, I, I don't really see a lot of that. Um, people seem to be getting on with their lives, but I don't really see a great deal of acquiring wisdom or pushing themselves uh, to really uh, become what they can be. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, because I went from being a musician and playing in bands and not even thinking about this esoteric stuff till like, you know, like four years ago and then getting heavily, heavily into it um, and rediscovering my spirituality because I was um, raised Catholic I never really felt anything, any metaphysical connection or anything, you know, didn't seem to be there until I had my first, you know, psychedelic experiences in my, you know, early or mid mid teens and in high school and stuff. And then from there, I kind of felt like there was more to the world, but I never really looked into it. And then, like I said, I got into music and being a musician and um, now I'm kind of on this whole other kick, which is all this kind of stuff. So, and obviously I have the, the music stuff in my back pocket if I need to you know use it or want to go back to it but um I can definitely that's how I identified you know with this book I really felt like you do kind of go into these different stages if you will um and while like you mentioned it might not be the same thing nowadays I, I still think that there's this like uh, connection to that if you will yeah um this only can be yeah I mean if somebody stumbles across it or is looking for it but I don't think that's the average person. Right. So do you think that we need to, do you think that by preserving the mystery traditions and all this esoteric knowledge that this is keeping that alive? Or do you think that this is something that'll just eventually evolve into something completely different? Yeah, it's, um, it's difficult to say. And, um, you know, one of the, uh, one of the problems with, uh, let's say preserving mystery traditions and I haven't really found this in Freemasonry, but I've been involved in other kinds of um, uh, organizations, let's say, that, that claim to represent the mysteries. And um, one of the big issues with a lot of them is that often there can be a lot of ego and um, it can be someone's personal playground where they can kind of control people, but not really passing on any great wisdom. And um, I'm sure the occult world or the esoteric world as a whole is going to uh, change dramatically, especially with uh, new technology, um, whether it's or YouTube or the internet as a whole or virtual reality. I'm sure all these things will, will come into play. I don't think that that's going to mean that it's more serious. Uh, I think a lot of what happens is that um, the assumptions of the modern world, which aren't what people believed before the, the modern world began, or before the modern age, and certainly not what ancient people believed, 
all of the assumptions and beliefs of the modern world get filtered into the occult world and that becomes the focus so it's almost like uh, you know they may they say oh you know maybe they believe in gods and goddesses but their real beliefs are what is on cnn uh, and whatever the latest trend in thinking is and then they sort of sort of reinterpret the gods and goddesses to say no no that's what we've always believed and uh you know and you get the same thing in christianity as well you know christian uh jesus is a kind of um socialist uh or whatever it was or an anti-racist or whatever and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with having those views but when you read them back into history or into your religion and that's all you see I think you're missing about 98% of what the religion is all about because it certainly wasn't about that. And so I don't know how much use much of that world is going to be for people except as a kind of um as a way of, you know, maybe it's something creative, maybe it makes people feel good. There's nothing wrong with that, but I don't think it gives people uh let's say a different way of looking at the world and a way of looking at the world from a pre-modern or an ancient um perspective and um you know that perspective uh which is missing very largely in the west isn't just something that existed in ancient times it's also the perspective of uh, um i would say frankly of islam of many other religions of of buddhism once you get outside the west or of hinduism outside the west you know i, I listen to actually um a lot of uh, um uh, islamic uh theologians or sheikhs and uh, i look quite regularly and um you know i feel i have in a sense more in common with their world view than i do with uh with the world view of um of the occult so i see myself as actually quite outside the occult not really part of it but um you know one of the and it would not be by the way all uh, all shakes at all um uh, but the, the the few that i listen to um tend to be uh very uh, versed in philosophy western and and islamic and uh are able to think about the world from a entirely different perspective which you will never see on CNN or on Fox News or anything like that or the BBC it's a completely different way of uh, looking at the world and of thinking about the world and um that kind of interests me more to be quite honest Hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price Priceline Yeah, so um when you look at your book, like what aspects of spirituality do you think that there's a lot of validity to or like not even just your book, but like all these traditions, like what aspects of spirituality yeah. that are, you know, you don't even have to tie it to necessarily religion, but like what do you think mm-hmm. is truth in that regard? Yeah. Well, let's just take um the three archetypes or three vocations from a spiritual perspective just very briefly and in a in a way a very kind of soft 
overview, um, which isn't going to cover everything, but just very briefly, you could say, um, well, you know, what is the craftsman? And the craftsman is someone who hones himself uh, through learning a skill, um, whether that's stone masonry, which became uh, out of which Freemasonry came, or whether that's alchemy, which had this you know spiritual dimension, always became later on a kind of spiritual metaphor for the development of the spirit. Um, you know, learning the process of alchemy, or whether it's something else. Uh, you know, Plato talking about learning music. Music connects to the idea of the uh, the music of the spheres. Uh, connects to the idea of geometry and so on, and um, and to the idea of harmony and internal harmony, and um, so you know the craftsman would, would be about learning a craft, which is in a sense about following rules to the point where you become a master in the craft, and then you can get rid of the rules and um, uh, bring forth something that is new, but that represents what is archetypal nevertheless. And then the warrior, the warrior is more obviously about the physical body, training the body, um, enduring pain, uh, reflecting on one's own mortality, on death, on um, uh, in, in sense embracing death, that we're not gonna be here forever, let's not fool ourselves. And um, in stretching a point or depending on what tradition we're looking at, um, it's also uh, very much involved with spirituality and even with this idea of, in, uh, particularly in Kung Fu, the idea of internal energy and of generating internal energy. And uh, lastly, the, the uh, magician, uh, we could uh, say, uh, partly uh, simply about wisdom and acquiring wisdom throughout one's uh, life and reflecting on uh, on life and on spiritual tradition and spiritual texts, but uh, we could uh, push that more and say it's also um, about uh, states of consciousness, uh, having some kind of or experiencing some kind of state of higher consciousness, um, which again would be in some respects uh, related to the idea of this higher self the lower self being the one that just wants to eat and have sex and have status in the world, and then the higher self um, uh, wanting to embody his or her true nature um, to become that sort of archetypal being that is already uh, within them in, in a latent sense. And um, doing, let's say, in a, to use a sort of slightly Christian language, doing the will of God, which is actually natural to oneself. Uh, but suddenly, yeah, uh, experiencing higher states of consciousness, coming into contact with this higher self or embodying it. And um, uh, if one looks at the shaman, we could also talk about uh, experiencing uh, divine union, especially through the bringing together of uh, male and female, which you would get in different ways, shamanism, tantra, even uh, Jungian psychology. And uh, so, and modern Western uh, sex magic. Yeah. So normally, when we discuss like the mystery traditions, esoteric stuff on this podcast, or at least the guests that we've had, P.D. Newman and some other people, you know, we we talk about it in um, connection with possible psychoactive compounds and psychedelics, especially when it comes to like alchemy, because um, there is a physical alchemy, and then you have, as yeah. you mentioned, the spiritual <clears throat> alchemy. Um, mm -hmm. 
is that something that is prevalent or you've heard about? Like, I mean, not necessarily like, um, uh, I just, I wonder how, how often is that even discussed if at all? Um, in, in, in which in, 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 when, in, when, you know, in the Masonic traditions or when you're with these other people that study these things, like, yeah. is that, is that something that's discussed ever or is that not really? Um, well, I think PD Newman is probably the biggest sort of, um, advocate of, uh, at least exploring the history of psychedelics in Freemasonry, if, if that has actually ever occurred. So, yeah, I think it would be kind of limited to him. I think what he says is interesting, but I don't really see it outside of that in Freemasonry. Uh, I mean, certainly in the cult, the occult world, um, they would be much more open often to, you know, psychedelics. Um, and what was the other thing you mentioned, psychedelics and? Uh, uh, just, you know, like, I, like you know, in, in combination with these traditions. I mean, obviously, yeah. there's the Eleusinian Mysteries. Now there's proof right. that there was physical something with yeah. the... Uh, the uh, Kekian and yeah. um, you know the brew, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's some debate still on whether what exactly it was, but um, right, right, right. Uh, and it, in India as well, I have this idea of soma. Yeah, soma. And, we just and, talked about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Careful now. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Zoroastrianism, you have homa, <laughs> which seems to be the same thing. And yeah. in, even in uh, Norse mythology, you have this like you have the idea of the poetic edda that is able to if they uh, drink a drop of it will make people into poets which again was poetry was often intertwined with you know, magic and inspiration and divine inspiration so yeah so the, the, clearly there is this uh there are these veins of um psychedelics of, of some kind or mind-altering substances you find in different ancient traditions and maybe in some modern ones as well but um, I mean, personally, uh, I've always been more interested in what you can do with the mind itself. Uh, you know, Salvador Dali is supposed to have said, you know, I don't do drugs, I am drugs. Right. And uh, I kind of feel similarly, which is not to say I've never experienced any kind of drugs because I may have, but <laughs> uh, not psychedelics actually. But um, the drugs I have experienced really didn't do very much for me. And um, I've personally have experienced sort of psychedelic phenomena just from uh, doing kind of let's say chakra meditations and um, and various uh, various uh, sort of meditational techniques so I that's been my preference so that's why I wanted to ask you because um, I mean I meditate I get to some pretty psychedelic places so I would agree with you there um, but other than that, I mean, the interesting thing that the reason why we talk about it so much is because it's literally the only thing that everybody can do where it'll take you to this one place where you're conscious, able to walk around and, um, you're in an altered state while you're, while you're still in your waking state, which is rare. I mean, near death experiences, you're out of it. Uh, meditation, you know, you're usually sitting still closed eyed. I mean, there's, you could say maybe Tai Chi or something like that. Um, yeah. but all the other altered states, lucid dreaming they all you're all kind of either you know you're, you're not conscious or you're halfway conscious something like that uh so that's why it's interesting to me but i will yeah say the meditation is interesting uh but i've never felt um anything really that metaphysical or like when i look at metaphysics i always wonder where those ideas came from because even in meditation it's not like psychedelic entities are, are coming to you per se on a regular basis if mm. you will yeah i think probably part of the reason for that is that the, we live in such a different world in, in, today 
And um, we live in a world that's very sort of factual. So if we want light, we flick a light switch. We have 24-hour uh, entertainment. Uh, our bellies are full pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we get enough sleep often, or well, some people don't. But, uh, you know, if you went back to uh, the pre-modern world and certainly the ancient world, um, you know, that wouldn't be the case. You know, if you needed to have light, you'd have to make a fire. Uh, you'd be living with, at least in, a, in the best scenario, in a village with uh, wild animals on the outskirts, um, with nature where danger was lurking. And um, you may not be eating all the time. Um, and even, you know, uh, in Catholicism or Islam, it's still fasting, for example. Or maybe you would be, let's say, fasting or uh, then going through some kind of ritual the, late in that stage. Um, so uh, the chances of you having a psychedelic experience were, were much greater, I would say, with all, all those conditions. Yeah, I mean, we talk about that all the time, too. You know, yeah. modern times, even looking up at the stars is very hard to do. Everything's blocked yeah. out by, like, light pollution. Yeah. So yeah. You, you don't have that same... Yeah, you don't have that same connection at all. No. Um, so I could definitely see, you know, like you mentioned, maybe fasting mixed with meditation or something. I could I could definitely see you getting there. I was just always curious on people's point of views that are interested in these topics because, yeah. like I said, I think that... It's a very complicated thing. It's not so cut and dry. No, no, indeed. And, you know, um, obviously shamans did take some kind of drug often. But, you know, there was other techniques as well. So maybe it's a long, long period of fasting. Maybe it's fasting but sitting out in some desolate place or in a graveyard. Um, for a long time, tantricas would meditate in graveyards. And those kind of graveyards are not like our graveyards. They might be body parts scattered around and this kind of thing. And, um, you know, or, um, fr- frankly, physical pain was a, another technique as well. So, and trepanning yeah. and some of the earliest examples. Uh, I'm actually not sure what that is. Trepanning is when somebody would drill a small hole in their cra- A shaman would drill like a small hole. I think actually, I forget her name. There's a woman from the UK who's associated with psychedelics, who's famous that I think has... Uh, done the procedure to herself. Um, wow. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 intense. Um, yeah. And supposedly yeah, that's you... supposed to alter. Obviously, that's crazy. You know, like I, I don't I don't know that anybody would do it in modern times, but it's pretty yeah. pretty prevalent. And a lot of the some of these ancient sites that have yeah. shamans and stuff. And uh, yeah. to your point too, there's you know there's shamanic traditions and shamanic evidence to point to you know no psychoactive compounds but then there's also the yeah. ones that do have the psycho so sure. psychoactive compounds so i don't think it's necessary but it is uh, again one of those things where it's very complicated okay sandy just it's amanda fielding so that that's who the the uh oh, lady okay. i was mentioning so there's actually an yeah. episode of hamilton's pharmacopoeia uh on where they're talking about lsd where she's on that episode so it's kind of a it's definitely an intense episode so if you're not yeah. interested in that kind of thing I, I i definitely recommend looking away for those parts so um so back to your your research though so um when it comes to spirituality like what do you personally believe or like what do you hang your head on these days do you think that there's yeah. more than what meets the eye or metaphysical realms or uh, these other planes or yeah well yeah 
there's definitely more than meets the eye in this world for sure absolutely yeah and i've certainly had you know psychedelic experiences without taking psychedelics um, meditating, uh, doing chakra meditations out in nature, for example, and really actually having hallucinations, uh, you know, and, um, you know, that doesn't prove that there are things beyond this world. But I think, uh, you know, w when you think about what the mind is capable of and actually sending itself into some kind of trance state, um, uh, and then combined with, let's say, weird coincidences and strange phenomena that just seems to be, it seems to occur that can't be explained or can be explained rationally, but wouldn't really seem to be the most, uh, the best uh, explanation for it. I think we've all experienced strange things, definitely lots and lots of strange coincidences, thinking of someone we haven't seen for 10 years and then we see them. 10 minutes later or the next day or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so there definitely seems to be something beyond this world. And I, I personally don't have any uh, doubt about that. Um, in regard to my own, um, let's say, spirituality, uh, yeah, it's uh, difficult because I'm not really someone who, uh, quote unquote, believes. So I, I personally can't really uh, see myself becoming you know, a Catholic or a Muslim as much respect as I have for um, at least elements of those uh, traditions. Um, but I, I personally, uh, I've come to the conclusion uh, recently that we are in a kind of very uh, nihilistic uh, world and one that's getting more nihilistic. And it may just be the, the job of those of us born in the West into no tradition to, um, to uh, explore spirituality in a way that might be more dangerous but more adventurous and, and certainly that involves meditation and entering into trance states and trying to um, have some uh, experience of higher states of consciousness but uh, and an understanding of religion and the best parts of religion in, in general uh, but I think it also means um, uh, trying to understand that the culture as well and the, and the best of our um, of our modern culture and, and modern thinkers as well, and to be involved in ideas and with people who think, uh, so that the spiritual practice is not a cliche. It, it's not this uh, this kind of uh, very base um, base spirituality of you know. Well, if that's how Thor makes you think, man, just mm. do it. It's not. It's not that. There's some actual. There's some actual thinking behind it. So, uh, you know, we could liken the craftsman, warrior, and magician to the mind, body, and spirit as well. And, uh, the, you know, these are important. I think it's important to read uh, modern thinkers. So I've been reading uh, Camus, uh, Albert Camus lately. Um, I try to reference lots of different um, uh, thinkers in, in my writing, especially in my next book. You know, I spent a few years reading Georg Hegel, which is a very mixed blessing. I don't really recommend it, but, uh, you know, I think you have to exercise your mind, body, and your spirit. Um, it's not easy, but uh, that's what I feel. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, when you look at spirituality and where it's going, you you know, you kind of hit it on the head. It's like we're kind of in this new phase with technology and we're kind of headed down this new path. Um, so even more so, I think spirituality is taking on this whole new definition where people are using it in a, 
very more loose way, you know, and, you know, it's different connections to different, you know, whether you're a psycho not and you're exploring your mind or you're uh, somebody that's experienced metaphysical realms through like uh, lucid dreaming or astral travel and all these different things. So it's definitely taking on all these different um, interpretations. But you mentioned something about how um, without spirituality, you know, we run into some problems and you can even go back to um, Socrates or possibly Plato speaking as Socrates when they're talking about how, you know, the world becomes a dangerous place when there's no higher thing or higher calling or power, or whatever you want to call it to believe in, because, you know, you start heading towards that nihilistic, uh, point of view. And if there's, if nothing doesn't mean anything and there's no purpose or telos, you know, it's, that's a very yeah. dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> Yeah, we live in interesting times. Um, yeah, <laughs> where do you think that where do you think that disconnect came from? Like, when did uh when did the human race you know kind of put that away? And I guess it has a lot to do with the the, the introduction of more scientific based material. But I don't know. I it's a, I guess it's a question that's very esoteric, if you will. Yeah. Well, I think you know. I mean, science certainly has had a a, a large effect. Although, you know, even under um, uh, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, I forget, uh, Pope, uh, Pope Benedict, um, you know, even, even he said, you know, science and, re- and religion doesn't conflict. And if science tells us that, you know, there was no Adam and Eve, we shouldn't take that literally. Uh-huh. So I don't know that um, science is the nail in the coffin to religion. Uh, people who are atheists, atheists think it is because they don't really grasp um, what intelligent religion is like. I mean, if you listen to, um, you know, religious zealots, then sure, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's opposed to everything they think. They're crazy. But to intelligent religious thinkers, it's not an issue. But um, I think uh, if historically, obviously, the French Revolution um, uh, played a big part in uh, uh, minimizing uh, Christianity and uh, really knocking that off its pedestal in, uh, in certainly in France and then elsewhere as well, of course. Uh, but, you know, beyond that or closer to our own time, I think uh, World War One and Two um, also uh, did extraordinary damage, maybe World War One more than maybe uh, World War Two, in fact, because, you know, that was the first time you had mechanized warfare and um, uh, killing on a scale that would be difficult for us to imagine. I believe it was over 20,000 men on the British side in World War One were killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Well, you know, today I don't think we could, I think roughly 40,000 were injured as well. That's on one side and on, in one day. And that sort of carnage is difficult for us to comprehend. Yeah. Um, I don't even think we would fight a war with those sort of numbers. And, you know, millions were wiped out. Entire cities were flattened. You know, and even today, if you look around um, Great Britain, if you look at some of the older uh, buildings, you can see like bullet holes in the, in the walls, if you look carefully. And obviously Dresden was completely flattened. Uh, you know, millions of people, uh, civilians were wiped out certainly millions of soldiers. So, you know, when you experience this uh, carnage uh, on an industrial scale and then all of the chivalry of course seems to be taken out of war uh, because it's almost like this uh, phenomenon of a of a, a historical meat grinder 
um, you know, a lot of people, maybe the majority of people, came away from that very, very, very disillusioned with religion and with tradition and society. And so you get a kind of radical movement springing up after that. Um, yeah, I'm picturing uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall right now. I know, now I was thinking about yeah. that too. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah it, that makes a lot of sense though. It's like, how could a God, you know, allow this kind of stuff to happen? Yeah, and it, well, of course, you know, it wasn't even just that. It was also that the, during World War One, in particular, the, of course, the churches would say, you know, we need to fight against the Han or whatever it is, you know. And then when you see all of your comrades being killed in a gas attack and the, the, the minister didn't go and fight, uh, you're probably going to have a bad taste in your mouth about that, especially, you know, a lot of people went into it very naively thinking it would all be over by Christmas. And, and the youngest uh, the youngest soldier in World War One was 12 years old, by the way, because people would, you know, young bo boys would sometimes lie and say, I'm 18, and it would, knowing that they weren't 18 would be shipped off to, you know, be killed. So That's crazy, too, to think about yeah. the kids in our era. Like, obviously, back then, people matured a little quicker. Maybe it's because of the times. Maybe it was because of what was surrounding them. But I could not imagine a child at 12 going to yeah, war exactly. now. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the benefits of technology in modern times, though, is we don't have that same... Uh, bloodshed and kind of, you know, and even if you like, I'll look back, you know, you watch these movies, whether it's like something on like the Revolutionary War or something, they're all standing in a straight line. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah you know, was, like it's like, I'm like, I can't even imagine thinking or like watching the show The Vikings. They're just running full lines of people at each other. You know, it's like, yeah. this is crazy. Um, yeah. But uh, so, where, what do you think? when you think of like your book and your research and all these traditions, and then you look at like technology and where it's going, do you see some sort of um, metamorphosis happening with spirituality in terms of like the way we look at like technology and AI and computer learning and that kind of stuff? Like, do you think that there's going to be some sort of transition? Yeah, that's a good question. And, um, you know, when, when chaos magic first came on the scene, well, maybe not first came on the scene, which was the 1970s, but certainly by the 1980s, um, there was this big idea that computers and magic would somehow merge together. And you had, uh, you know, some individuals who would be trying to do some kind of like spell by casting it through the computer monitor and this kind of thing, um, uh, which is obviously a very primitive way of thinking about this. Um, I mean, sure, technology can, uh, can possibly help uh, spirituality. Um, but uh, it's difficult to see this becoming a general rule. Uh, I mean, if broadening the, the, the notion of spirituality, yeah, you could say that for, you know, if you look at architecture outside of America and, you know, China or Mexico and elsewhere, you know, now they're building buildings which incorporate uh, nature uh, into it. So you have these enormous skyscrapers that uh, almost look like these green blocks of nature. Um, you know, certainly that's a good thing. Or if you look at Elon Musk with, uh, you know, um, solar, solar panels and electronic cars, this is all fantastic stuff that we should be making much more of in America. And it's really a scandal that particularly with architecture, this is going on in other countries, but not in, let's say, New York, where they're always building buildings. 
um, you know, uh, uh, so there's a potential, at least, that you could have, in say a century from now, cities that are completely green, um, with all the buildings incorporating nature, which would be fantastic. And I think that would bring back some kind of semblance of spirituality. Uh, that would be great. So, I mean, there are definite possibilities. Uh, I think the danger of technology is that um, is that it enables people to incorporate the worst elements of modernity, but to have some kind of veneer of being spiritual. So it's so it becomes a kind of a uh, kind of emotional band-aid for people that you know they um, maybe they're you know going to work and, and getting stressed and making money and doing unethical things, but then they come home and do a pagan ritual and they feel. Of, you know that makes everything okay or they've just adopted all of the assumptions of modernity but project it back onto ancient goddesses or gods or something so that instead of actually understanding what ancient people were doing or pre-modern people uh, they sort of ventriloquize ancient goddesses or ancient deities to make them say the prejudices of uh, the, the time that we live in today. And although we think we don't have any, we have all kinds of prejudices that we won't be able to see for 50 years or more. So I, I think that's the danger. And, you know, um, uh, a figure who said this uh, probably more eloquently than me is, uh, you know, Slavoj Žižek, not, uh, not particularly about neo-paganism. Um, Slavoj Žižek uh, calls himself a communist, by the way. But uh, has talked about this in regards to quote unquote Western Buddhism, where the the Wall Street banker can go home at night and tell himself that it's all just an illusion, you know, uh, and practice some Buddhist meditation and then go back and ruin people's lives tomorrow with trading or whatever he's doing. So I think that that that's the the danger of uh, spirituality today that it, it acts as a kind of band aid for to enable people to uh, to either go go along with all of the worst of modernity without even realizing that's what it is or to do things that are unethical uh yeah yeah that's interesting um one more question before we stop this and start our uh, patreon segment with you sure, sure how how prevalent is like these esoteric ideas like how when you we're talking about like freemasonry or you're a mason and you're around other masons like how prevalent is like a lot of this knowledge, is it being talked about? Because I mean, I've been approached by people I used to work with, hey, come to this, you know, lodge meeting and stuff like that. But it just seems to be more of like beer yeah. drinking or social hour right. or something like that. Like how prevalent yeah. are these like initiatic ideas or these like ancient and esoteric um, philosophies? Like how often is that actually even discussed? Yeah, well, if you had asked me uh, 20 years ago, uh, I would, well, it's a complicated subject, let's put it that way. But 20 years ago, uh, certainly if you went to a lodge, you would not hear anything about the esoteric or it would be incredibly rare. Uh, today, that, that's changed a great deal in many lodges, uh, particularly as younger people are joining or more people are joining. Um, the people that are joining today typically are interested in the esoteric they're not really interested in joining a club to go out drinking with the guys. And that's because all this stuff is so accessible anyway. 
And uh, so now it's become much more of a focus. And you had, uh, for example, over the last few years, uh, Esoteric Con, uh, which is a big sort of esoteric conference uh, for Freemasons. And, um, and we've had various uh, quote unquote Masonic cons around the country, which are day or sometimes weekend long events where the emphasis, um, there will be speakers on history, but often there's a lot of speakers on um, esoteric symbolism and mysteries and so on. So it's definitely become um, a much bigger deal. It's definitely become where the energy is and in a sense, the driving force in Freemasonry. That said, um, you could go to many lodges today and, uh, you know, have, you know, just a very pleasant social experience. But uh, I would say within any city, uh, you could also find lodges now that are focused on the esoteric, on mysteries and symbolism, philosophy. Uh, there's even groups that are doing meditation in the lodge now. I've certainly uh, led a meditation in, in the lodge as well. So, so you know, it might take some digging, uh, but you can definitely find it. And, um, and there are groups within Freemasonry that are entirely dedicated to the esoteric. Uh, the Societas Rosicruciana being uh, the main one of those, which is a kind of Rosicrucian Masonic society, which is in, entirely focused on uh, the esoteric, the Kabbalah, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, world spiritual traditions. And always, and always has been uh, for the last uh, uh, century and a half since its founding. So, you know, it might take a little bit of looking around. Uh, you might have to do some work. You might have to go to the library. You might have to get more in involved and ask around, but certainly I would say in any city in America today, you, you could find uh, lodges that are very much focused on the esoteric. Interesting. Yeah. I have one more short question before sure. we start. Do you have an owl? An, an owl? Uh, yeah, I was hearing an owl, a hoo-hoo. Uh, oh. There was like a bird, something in the back. It could have been from out your window or something. But oh. I thought that that was kind of interesting, to you, given the topic that we're discussing. Yeah, I thought you were thinking of the, the Illuminati owl yeah, or something yeah. like that. I, really, I have it. It's all over New no, York, man. <laughs> no, no, no owls. We have. We just have planes and birds, and that's about it. So, but nothing as exotic as an owl. Well, maybe you had a machine Perseus <laughs> one uh, sitting around there, but... Uh, all right, so let's um, let's wrap it up here. Definitely go check out Angel's book again. I have it right here. The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, um, and uh, I, I really recommend it. Um, so go check that out. I have a link down below. You've also written a book, correct, on Freemasonry? I've written three. Um, three, first okay. one is just a uh, general history. second one, which is impossible to get hold of, maybe it will be republished in the future, I'm not sure, but that one's on Freemasonry and the Esoteric. And the third book was on Freemasonry and Islam, or more correctly on, let's say, um, uh, sort of radical spiritual groups and, and esoteric Freemasons and their connection often with uh, sort of uh, radical uh, Muslim thinkers from 1850 to around 19, 1930, thereabouts. Beautiful. Okay, so I have the link down below to his Amazon profile. So again, go check that out, please. And if you're interested, we are about to start a Patreon segment. Uh, so head on over to patreon.com slash podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Uh, it's basically a whole nother category or a whole nother catalog, I should say, of, of our show. Just uh, all of our guests. And we've even done some stuff that we haven't even done on our normal pages. So go check that out. 
And one more time before we get out of here, head on over to indrasweb.org. It is live. This is the platform we created to have these types of conversations, um, you know, connecting open minds and discussing topics that aren't normally discussed out there, whether it be metaphysics or metaphysical things. So head on over to there. And again, thank you so much, Angel. We really appreciate you sharing your research and your knowledge. And uh, we look forward to this Patreon segment here. Thank you very much. I've been enjoying your videos. Thank Thank you. you. All right, folks. We love everybody. Stay safe out there and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace.